This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Many Year Scenarios. Seligman's Dream Archive. The Birth of Cocktail Culture. And Sabotaging Otrang. Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts. But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm. So say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon. A quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin. Oh yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it. If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out. Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon is available now, so take your place at the frontier of style today. You can learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive, and Peter Frampton in you, and Peter Frampton where he should be, and Peter Frampton rising up, and Peter Frampton breaking all the rules, and Peter Frampton's premonition, and Peter Frampton coming alive again, welcome us to the Gaming Hut, because we're talking about a scenario that, like Peter Frampton's storied career, takes place over many years, and hopefully, Robin, is just as enthralling. Yes. Is, is that a fair statement of our mission statement? Yes, perhaps even has one scene where he loses his beloved guitar in a plane crash, and then 15 years later, he uh, gets it back, almost none the worse for wear. Has almost it. none the worse for wear. A, a victory for everybody, really, for, yes. for humanity, for the human spirit. So, yeah, I was recently uh, writing one of my ongoing series of sort of scenario hooks that show you how a campaign of uh, The Yellow King uh, will go through all of its four sequences. And uh, near the end of the one for the wars, I found myself typing, and since you're getting to the end, why don't you do a scenario that takes place over a number of years and spans all of the things that you haven't managed to cover in the first 11 or 12 episodes and it can you know show the war dragging on and on. And, uh, and then I thought to myself afterwards, oh, but wait, I've just suggested to the long-suffering reader something that I can't think of a model for. I, I can't think of a scenario that actually does that. We've got saga-based games like Pendragon and uh, various other games that descend from that idea, but they tend to be, there's a scenario, and then many years later, or a season later, or whatever it is, there's another scenario. But you can think of some models, often based on true crime, that reflect the fact that real Murder investigations, for example, often go on over a course of many years before the perpetrator is finally caught, if they are caught at all, because the granddaddy of those is Zodiac, right? Uh, the film based on the Zodiac Killer, which, spoiler, ends <laughs> with a, a strong suspect, but no clear resolution. And that's the whole point of that. Or you can look at the 
a true crime series all be gone in the dark or uh, other things in that vein where you uh, see a case unfold over many years. And this doesn't have to be a mystery per se, although the original impetus of this is to do it in gumshoe game. But you can imagine, for example, a grail hunt uh, that is all, you know, swords and sorcery that takes place over a period of many years. Or you could do, you know, a telescoped or I guess de-telescoped, elongated a career of your uh, F-20 adventurers where you, you know, every hour you grab more character sheets and it's, you've gone up five levels and it's 10 years later. So you go from fresh-faced young adventurers who are afraid of uh, rats and centipedes to, at the end, decrepit god kings who are getting too old for this stuff. So can what do we want to grab onto as sort of a unifying technique to... uh pull off this thing. I mean, I should also adduce the, probably the best example of published scenarios that are meant to take place over generations or even centuries. And that's the Giovanni Chronicles from Vampire, which took advantage unusually of the fact that the protagonists of Vampire are supposed to be immortal. And so why not play stuff that takes place, you know, over hundreds of years? The problem, of course, being that none of the rest of the game is designed to do that. So it's sort of sat in, in lonely, beautiful splendor. And I suppose people ran like the last two thirds of it or, or things like that, or, you know, it, it swung and I think it hit, but it, it was not a home run necessarily, but it was the, the most ambitious attempt to do that kind of thing. Um, I think that what you need to do first off is decide, is this scenario going to be a scenario that you are running all of a once, right? That you are saying, we are now going to cover the next 10, 15, 25 years of our characters' lives, and they spend it all on that grail hunt or all on that hunt for, you know, the the, the liver-eating cannibal or all of that on the expedition to Pluto. And this is uh, how that scenario breaks down as the ship breaks down on that whole trip. Or are you saying we're doing this scenario as sort of a interstitial scenario that happens, uh, you know, one scene of it happens between all of our other scenarios, uh, because that's going to be two sorts of design and two sorts of feel. Doing it as an interstitial scenario is really just, you know, whisper it, designing nine scenarios, nine little mini uh, scenario scenes. And that's, I think, easier probably than trying to figure out how to, A, get player character buy-in and B, usefully present and emotionally evoke the passage of years while you're doing things. Because, of course, you know, even in the Zodiac case, the journalists and cops are investigating other stuff. They're not just chasing Zodiac for, you know, a dozen years and change. They're, they've got other stuff happening in their lives, even though Fincher, you know, keeps Zodiac at the center of it. Right. Well, I'm going to say for the sake of this discussion that, A, we've got player buy-in. We've convinced mm-hmm. our hypothetical players that they want to do this. And in part, there's some reason why that is, for example... In the, uh, you know, the original example is you're going to switch to a, another phase of the Yellow King. So right. they're, they're getting ready to say goodbye to these characters. And this is their penultimate voyage with them. Their swan and song. Because it is harder, let us do the one where you are, in fact, having big uh, time leaps. And you can, in fact, say, you know, we're just going to drop in on the phases of these characters' lives where this plot comes back. And... So uh, that brings us to the question of pacing. And essentially, uh, you know, you have a scene in which a development happens. That development in a sort of a fighty game can be a fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, in an investigative game, it can be a major revelation that you 
uh, discover something important about the case, or I guess perhaps rather you pursue a series of revelations until you hit another dead end. And then there's a point where the players have to relinquish their control over timing, which players are reluctant to do. Hence you're having gotten buy-in from them Yeah, because this is like a, this is like a barbecue sauce recipe that begins first make barbecue sauce. Right. <laughs> and now we're going to tell you how to slather it on the ribs. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, you're correct that in theory, there are ways that you can, that you can get player buy-in on this, on this question. And I think a lot of it is either as a, as a valedictum of the characters or, I think one other possibility that occurred to me is as a means of getting back at the villain, right? If you are, for example, in Chronicles of Amber, Corwin is blinded and thrown in the dungeon. And then for a chunk of the novel, he just sits there and angrily wills his eyes to grow back. And that's not riveting play, but you can imagine the necromancer has sent you into another dimension or sent you deep into the past and you have to just will yourself to live back to the future so you can, you know, kill him. That is, I feel like a, uh, you know, give the players either as you, as you suggest earlier, a structural reason. We all know that we're going to be reincarnated in the next yellow King. Don't worry about it. This is not actually going to be, you know, the whole rest of your game time or something where this is something you could not accomplish any other way, except with a big, long scenario, you, you know, achieve the grail, you know, get out of that trap, do whatever. And I think then if you present it that way, the players may grab onto it in the spirit of challenge and fun and difference, right? Right. So there has to be some sort of temporal goal or some reason why they are willingly embracing the uh, big, long time jump. So it could be, yeah. you know, you're on uh, the giantest planet known and, you know, air travel is no longer possible. So all travel is over land and in order to go and, uh, you know, assemble the MacGuffin or take vengeance on the six dukes or whatever it is that literally the process of moving from one location to another is a matter of years that will change you. And so mm-hmm. I guess the unifying thing for all of these is that there will be a point where you reach an end point or a, uh, a sort of a mini climax or the opposite of that, which is a, a dead end. And then the GM says, okay, so. Six years have passed. What have you all been doing while you were waiting for the beacon to go off to tell you that another of the uh, cicada dukes uh, has hatched somewhere in the world? Or, you know, what were you mm-hmm. uh, doing in your careers while you were waiting for another letter to drop from the killer and another possible killing to take place? Or, you know, you had to wait for the, sus- the suspect to get out of jail to go and uh, go to his storage locker where you don't know what it is. So, Four years went by, and while you were waiting, now he's getting out. And so that there's always a, a clear reason that makes sense to people as to you know why they couldn't be acting and furthering this goal until now. And that can, depending on what setting it is, it can be something quite fantastical, like you know, well, you have to wait for the stars to be right. You know, you did the prediction, and Yugalanak was not going to manifest until 1954. Well, it's New Year's Day. In 1954, time to go to Portsmouth and see what's up with Yugalanak or, you know, the guy is out of jail and and what do you do? So I guess the the Mm. point is to kind of structure it around reasons why you can't progress and uh, have that be part of the formula. Or it can just be something where 
uh, as in you are soldiers in a war, it's like, well, you kind of have limited agency, right? That you uh, got as far as, uh, you know, locating the Black Lake and then the uh, rear echelon guys pulled you back and you've been uh, waiting, waiting for some other engagement where you would see the Black Lake again. And guess what? Three years of trench warfare later, the Black Lake has rematerialized. And how did you change in those three years? How did they wear away at you? Why are you being slowly ground down by the forces of age? Or in, I guess, a more hopeful world, it's like you've done your three years of training out in the wilderness and now you're, you're much buffer. How are you much buffer? And you could uh, sweeten up that transition in that case by handing out a bunch of experience points. So, yep. you know, what? how are you bigger and better and tougher and ready to uh, tackle the guys who uh, defeated you last time. Yeah, I mean, not to keep going back to the interstices, but I think that is part of it, is give the players, you know, either agency to say, what were you up to in the six years, and keep it snappy, we've got everyone has to go, or have a mini game. I mean, that's what the winter phase of Pendragon is, or of Mouse Guard, is you roll and see what happens to your character, but you're not having adventures because it's too cold. You could modify that and say, well, while you're, you know, living your way forward back to get to the, the necromancer, it's the, you know, 1840s. Tell me what your character got up to in the 1840s. Oh, I rushed to gold for, in California. Great. You have two wealth points. I did this. Well, roll to see if you survived that, you know, experience with Lola Montez or the Hungarian revolt or whatever. And boom, there you go. Um, I, you know, uh, fought crime in London with Charles Dickens. Great you know, roll this and some sort of mechanism where players have a little bit of ownership of that downtime, because if it's just during this time, you've lost two points of constitution and an eye because it was a war and wars are terrible. That, that feels a little more like, and even if the players have bought in, it feels a little more like just sort of an unfair penalty, even though they may intellectually say, well, yes, we were in a trench war. Of course, it was terrible. Of course, we lost. We did not gain. But at the very least, have a table or something to justify you doing it. At some point, let's get back to the actual adventure, though, because I feel like the the questions of timing and pacing almost depend more in this kind of an adventure on sort of arbitrariness and MacGuffinry than they do in a regular adventure. In a regular adventure, you're hunting a serial killer, the clues are coming, you're responding to them in real time, but the arbitrariness of, oh, nope, he's not going back to the mailbox, too bad, wait for another clue to break, that feels, I mean, it's realistic, but is it interesting enough to do that as opposed to something else at the table, I guess, is my question. So let us find various interesting plots that could drive someone over time. So mm -hmm. uh, it could be that you, like I suggested earlier, you have a number of enemies and you're trying to tick them off your, your list, right? That's your classic revenge plot. You've got to uh, take down the six dupes. Another thing is an enemy who reappears on a cyclical basis, right? That there's you know, cicada aliens mm -hmm. who come back uh, every 17 years. And, and each time they come back, you learn a little bit more about how to kill them. And so the, the mystery in that case is how do you figure out how to destroy the, the enemy? And so you're learning a little bit more about them each time. Or there is a, a manifestation, uh, to go back to the Black Lake example, that the first time uh, there's something about what you did that brought the black light into existence and you sort of almost you move toward it and then it flickered out. And then the next time 
what are the necessary conditions to bring back the black lake? Or, you know, is it just a matter of chance before this comes back? So it's something where there's a, I think, probably a repetitive or cyclical nature to it, where you're continuing to try to get better at doing something or, again, just simply, you know, you're uh, knocking things off the list or so other things that could be a, a list of accomplishments that connect over up over many years could be you're trying to bring peace to this planet where there's a great vast overland travel, but occasionally there people can go through these uh, warp corridors on the planet that allow people to travel quickly. And when they do, there's a terrible war and conflagration. And you know that uh, you've got X amount of time before another wormhole opens up and there's another wormhole war. And in the meantime, you're going from culture to culture trying to arrange the details of peace. And then you are uh, fighting off whoever it is who's, who's trying to stop that from happening. So on, on some level, I think we're looking at either an incremental accomplishment or a, a thing that happens on a cyclical basis that you have to be ready for or some combination of the two. I think another sort of a, a riff on that is that using your grail example, when you get to the grail, you know that only one knight will truly achieve the grail. And if you're proper Pendragon Knights, you, you're hopefully not uh, super jealous of each other, but you do know that only one knight can achieve the grail. And so as you're going through your grail encounters on the way to the grail, you know, over the years, there's an element of scorekeeping. It's like, oh, you, you slept with the loathly damsel. Uh, that was good for, you know, your charity, but it was bad for your chastity. The grail's not going to like that. And so there's a degree of, you know, if there is a final point, you can either say, how close are you, the players, to having everything you need for that climax? You know, you've assembled all of the uh, super weapons on the planet in order to fight off the last invaders who are going to come from off the planet and are really bad. And that's why this planet exists is to train up warriors for their mercenary corps or something. And how are we doing? And, oh, we lost one of those weapons in the battle to stop these other bad guys. Now we have to scramble and figure out a new weapon. We have to go find the the lost valley of the scientists and, and get a new super weapon. Something like that, where they are always engaged by the end point, as opposed to this is just rod of seven parts, only you're not letting us do anything between the seven parts of the rod. And then you sort of have to say, yeah, that's pretty much what it was. So there has to be some connection to the end goal that you can see, oh, that made it better, that made it worse. And that can be reflected in, oh, my character during those decades got better, my character during those decades, you know, got worse. And that that sort of, you know, on the way scorekeeping sort of approach, I think, keeps uh, eyes on the prize uh, at the end. And it also maybe makes the individual downtimes uh, more interesting, right? Right. Um, and I guess another uh, option would be a, a time travel thing where you're thrown back in time, you lose your time travel mechanism if you ever had it. And then you know that in order to succeed and get back to your own time, you have to, you know, well, I know in uh, 1978 is when dad made the time machine. So I've got to make sure that I stay alive and get prosperous and show up and, you know, slip into dad's time machine and go back to my regular time. And, uh, you know, hopefully I'll still be, you know, I've got a rejuvenation po potion. So once, once I, or, you know, once you go back to your original timeline, you, 
uh, warp back into your original age. But in the meantime, I'm going to have to live a number of decades. And, oh, look, at I can now see all these points in history that are different from my history, and I have to keep fixing history as well in order to make sure that dad can still make his time machine. Right. So uh, each of those, I guess, is we're getting closer to something that's like a series of linked adventures uh, where there is downtime uh, uh, between them. And that might be what people find more satisfying, right? Is that instead of a single adventure where they don't control the timing, there's a bunch of them, they control the timing within those, but then there's, there's time jumps within that frame. And then there's a broader story that you're shooting for. Yeah. I think that that's the sort of, and and again, that can be, uh, that can be a real opportunity to play with things at the table and change up the pacing so that it doesn't get old. You know, one of them is a, is a straight up mini adventure and it's just like you were having a regular adventure, except that four years pass after it. And one of them's a real quick encounter. It's like, this is the one time that the robot will wake up and you can ask it questions and, and, and get information from it and then cannibalize its parts you know, that you're going to need in the future. And so it's just a one encounter, boom, and then four years. And so you can play with that timing and make any individual stage on the, you know, not to say journey, but on the uh, stage in the, uh, in the time span, take as long or as short as you feel like player pacing demands. And some of them can be fairly elaborate and others can be, you know, relatively, quick you can set it up so that yes that player has to make the decisions they're in the spotlight for this one and then two years later oh it's another player that's in the spotlight and that i think it can give you an excuse to change up your game in a way that you couldn't if every game sort of is the same we find out what um uh, the clock king is doing we go fight him we get defeated by his ray we come back and fight him better up comic book is over time for the next comic book it lets you change that that rhythm up if your game is already of the sort to have fallen into a rhythm right and i guess uh, the key there is that rather than doing zodiac where you're just lost in a morass of possibility that in fact for each of those episodes you have a pretty clear idea going in what your objective is and so one objective might take an hour of game time another might take a whole session but that you uh, you the players have a sense of what is going on that you don't feel that you're groping or, or lost through it. You know, you have a series of clear objectives that you, for whatever reason, have been preparing for, for years. So rather than, you know, this is the next time that the black lake randomly materializes again, you've plotted out the mathematics and you know that uh, you have to survive for the next 14 years of war, but you know that in this battle and this battle and this battle and and this naval engagement that the Black Lake is going to be a factor and so that you uh, have a different goal involving the Black Lake each time. And uh, so it's more of a, uh, you know what you're doing and the other people around you don't. Well, at the risk of uh, having one segment that goes on for years and years, I think that we had better head out of this commercial and uh, see what waits for us on the other side. Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers 
are just the heroes to confront it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age adventure by Wade Rocket from Pelgrane Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on characters' icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF today. Cardus listeners can use the voucher code HASHCROWN21, that's CROWN21, to save... 15%. At PelgranePress.com slash shop. That's Crown of Access for 13th Age. It's time once again for Fun with Science. And uh, this time around, uh, beloved Patreon backer BT gives Ken a chance to start off by questioning whether Freudian psychology is science because he's asking us to delve into Charles Seligman's Archive of Dreams across the British Empire. And uh, Ken Charles Seligman was a London School of Economics professor uh, and psychologist who decided to uh, try and understand the universality of humanity by going beyond the sorts of patients who show up at uh, analysts uh, in Germany and the UK and other places where psychoanalysis is practiced and find out what everybody else is dreaming and in this case, everybody else would be the people from various British colonies that the hated British had uh, taken over. And uh, at this point, you're going to take over his story for us. Right. As you say, uh, Seligman was a uh, ethnologist. Um, he began uh, as, a, as a medical doctor and caught the ethnology bug when he was brought on an uh, anthropological expedition to the Torres Straits between New Guinea and Australia. In 1898, he was there with another towering figure in anthropology, W.H.R. Rivers. And uh, Rivers sort of bit him with the anthropology bug, the ethnology bug. And he continued to go to various locations and make fairly important ethnological studies. And so he went to Papua. He went to Ceylon to study the aboriginal inhabitants of Ceylon, the pre-Sinhalese Selenese. Uh, and then he went to Sudan, where he was a big devotee of what is called the Hamitic hypothesis, which is that a superior race entered Africa via Egypt, and that's why Ethiopians are better than other people in Africa. And you can imagine that the Ethiopians love that theory. No one else really does, and it turns out to be hogwash. But that was what he was doing, sort of uh, drilling through the old physical anthropology skull measuring era, as well as doing actually valuable field work in what do all these little tribes in the Sudan that no one has ever met think and uh, writing that down. So as with, you know, most 19th century, early 20th century sort of science, there is, there is valuable toys amongst the garbage, but it took him years to do it. And he interrupted that at uh Maghull hospital in world war one. He joined the Royal medical corps and was treating patients with shell shock, uh, nervous breakdowns, etc., because that was what Maghull specialized in. It was a psychiatric hospital, and he decided Freudianism was the was the thing. That's where he caught the disease. He'd already been teaching lots of other anthropologists at London School of Economics, Bronislaw Malinowski, Evans Pritchard, the guy that did the witchcraft studies in Central Africa, and a guy named Jackson Stewart Lincoln, who also caught the dream bug from uh, Seligman. And they all uh, began to sort of fan out and a look at what the natives thought of the world. And in this particular case, as you say, he gathered dreams, not just from the areas that he was in, but he sent out a questionnaire that any colonial administrator could use. And he says, this is a, a very simple method. This is for science. Just find someone who can't run away, 
ask them to describe their dreams. Uh, you transcribe it without interrupting them with a lot of, you know, nonsense. Then you ask them to interpret their own dream, which I think is kind of clever. Then you ask them to free associate, say, what does that pillar in your dream mean to you? What, do, what do you think the elephant is? And then, uh, you ask them to narrate their dream again, basically to check to make sure that they haven't drifted their dream memory. And that will give you a, a sounding because, of course, even in 1923, Seligman knew that the actual dream we have is different from the experience of recounting the dream. He didn't act on that knowledge, but he didn't know it was the case. He had identified certain universals in a Western dream. And by identified, I mean, believe Freud. So, for example, if you dream of feces, it means money. And if you dream you've lost a tooth, it means death, disaster, or disease. Um, these seem like uncontroversial universal symbols, which aren't. But he found so many of these universal symbols amongst the anthropological dream set, the colonial dream set, that it began to turn him towards Jungianism into a belief that there are certain universal archetypes that, that are thrown up in all humanity. This was uh, bad news for someone who believed that there were very distinct races of humanity. He was not super happy with that. And so in 1931, he decides to do a control group and get dreams from British people. He goes on the BBC and delivers lectures in, in March of 1931. And he says, uh, fill out the form that's in your radio times and send it to me about your dreams. And turns out the British are just as superstitious and weird and messed up about their dreams as everybody is. The universal truth is not Jungian archetypes or even um, uh, Oedipal conflict. The, the lack of Oedipal conflict was, was very interesting. And the lack of sexual conflict in uh, a lot of the dreams w was messing him up. But the British were just as weird as everybody else. He summarizes his research in uh, the Huxley lecture, which was a big deal in 1932, and then goes into psychic research because obviously he was done with dreams. Now it's time to do ghosts. And he joins the psychic research committee in 1935 and dies in 1940. So that is the storied career of uh, Charles Gabriel Seligman, a guy who disproved Freud and didn't want to hear it. So there we are. I should also mention that he believed that magic was basically like a living dream. It was a thing that you did a symbolic dramatization of uh, the same tensions that were in your dream. It discharges cultural or personal anxiety in the same way that dreams are meant to discharge your anxieties while you sleep. And uh, that uh, magic when carried to an extreme is like neurosis. So it's an interesting Freudian approach to magic and anthropology that he also developed about this same time. So you can imagine that he brings that into his studies of ghosts as well. Although I wasn't able to find anything that he wrote about ghosts. So we'll just have to guess and make things up just like Charles Gabriel Seligman did. Right. One thing that he found in a lot of his dream descriptions that he got back from people across uh, the British empire was that a lot of people's fears were of the British. Yeah. <laughs> who who saw that coming? Nobody. Uh, apparently not the British. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I guess his part of his sort of heading toward uh, understanding that maybe there was something not quite universal about Freud was that instead of the menacing imaginary fantasized father, the jackboot of authority uh, was <laughs> the threat and people were mm -hmm. afraid of being caught and harmed by their colonial conquerors. And uh, that, I think, is what we would look at as an example of, uh, well, that's a, a real fear. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing symbolic about that. And also, shout out to all the people in Nepal and Uganda and wherever who, while being interrogated by a British colonial official, 
were able to say, yeah, I dreamed that you were a giant elephant and basically ruined my life. I mean, not you per se, but, you know, a guy very like you in your same clothes. I mean, I guess you could argue, oh, no, they were reporting unconsciously. They didn't mean to say that. But my theory is they absolutely meant to say that and that the social context of telling people your dreams is something that Seligman, although he sort of gives lip service to it, I don't think he acknowledged is a thing, which is not to say that people in you know, Ceylon and, and, uh, and, and West Africa and whoever else weren't legitimately dreaming about their, uh, colonizers being horrible, oppressive disaster forces. The French anthropologists apparently also, uh, picked this up in Algeria, uh, that they, um, had uh, plenty of dream reports from Algeria that said, gosh, we sure would like to kill that big, ugly thing that suddenly showed up in our dreams that may or may not have spoken French. And they were just as baffled, really, just as, unable to figure out what that meant. Right. And and there is even an attempt to sort of psychologize uh, rebellion and say, well, we have to figure out the deep psychology between why all of these uh, people whose countries we've invaded uh, want to throw us out. We got to figure that out or, you know, or, or they'll rebel against us. And I mean, and Freud rode to the rescue because they said that it was adolescent rebellion against the father figure, that it was basically uh, warmed over Oedipalism. Right. And of course, even Oedipalism comes from the fact that Freud was um, mostly treating young uh, women of the bourgeoisie or the richer class and uh, the very troubled young women who came to him often reported that their fathers or other uh, older members of their family were uh, molesting them. And of course, Freud famously came to the conclusion that, oh, this is a fantasy that they're having and this is the root of their distress. But of course, we know with the benefit of hindsight that, oh, no, that was just happening. I think maybe people knew that without the benefit of hindsight. But yes, um, Freud did ruin it for everyone in so many exciting different ways. Yeah, so we have this great archive of dream information. There's at least 263 responses from Britain. So one assumes that the colonial outgroup, the imperial outgroup is, you know, roughly the same size or even bigger because... You know, what are you going to do? You're out there on, you know, guard duty in some godforsaken spot of Burma. You might as well interrogate people about their dreams, kill some time. So the, the, the notion obviously is that this is about 8 million Trail of Cthulhu threads waiting to happen, right? I mean, this is almost too obvious, but here we are saying it. It's like a dream, Robin. Right. And so that, of course, posits the existence of uh, many different dreamlands that different cultures, of course, have a different set of imagined uber realities. Uh, and uh, the if you're in England or America, yes, you wind up in Lord Dunsany land. But people from other cultures are going to see things, possibly, you know, their version of an idealized world, their version of a decadent world, and uh, no doubt uh, one invaded by conquerors who need to be uh, pushed out. So you could uh, do... A sort of an anti-colonial dreamlands game where, you know, if you can push out the dream representations of, uh, of the uh, colonial oppressors, uh, maybe you can push through into their dreamlands or uh, sort of affect, you know, if, if nothing else, you know, afflict uh, the local officers with uh, uh, dreams and nightmares that uh, interfere with their uh, administration and enable you to uh, knock them all out both in the uh, dream reality and the waking reality. Yeah, you could um, you could either present it such that you know the the people of Hlaineth and uh, Ulthar and Selephas are conquering other dreamlands, and the Dunzanian dreamland doesn't know that, 
or that all of the things are being interpreted differently so that regardless of who you are, dilathlene is the oppressor. It's just that if you're in India, dilathlene is British people, not weird little guys in turbans. And it's like, no, they're weird little guys in neckties. And that's who's messing with everybody. And so it can be a, a lens that you overlay on the Lovecraftian dreamland. I did go through the, what I was able to find of the Royal Anthropological Institution files. I didn't see the actual files, but I saw the summaries of the files. I did not see any dreams about mysterious cities under the sea or any dreams about building an idol, but I'm not saying that they weren't there. I'm just saying that uh, in the summaries, they were probably, you know, uh, hidden. Possibly one of Seligman's disciples uh, snaffled those right out of the files and uh, and went on. Uh, and of course, the Trail of Cthulhu characters can meet Seligman. He's active in the uh, 30s and is in his psychic researcher phase. So it could be that they first encounter him while investigating some sort of ghost or poltergeist situation. And then, you know, afterwards he talks to them about, you know, here's all this uh, dream information that I've got. And it may well be that just assimilating all of this dream data enables you to uh, move through the dreamlands once you arrive there with a, a greater assurance and to open things up and move things around and you become sort of an uber dreamer who is more able to be lucid while in the dreamlands. And possibly all of the people from all around the world reporting their dreams has, you know, rung a bell and that some sort of bad news dream entity, your yib to stole type entity is, you know, he didn't really pay attention, but the same questions being asked all over the dreamlands have sort of woken him up and he says, I'm going to find out what's on the other side of that veil. I've, I've been meaning to do that and I've been putting it off. And now people are asking questions there and they're shaping my boundaries. So I'm going to go mess with them. And the act of going and finding all this stuff out has churned something up in the dreamlands that is pursuing Seligman. And that's why he gets into psychical research is that he either starts having creepy dreams of a giant black glob that is uh, gazing at him, or he is um, uh, discovering in the dream records of other people that they are you know, uh, dreaming of losing a tooth and then they die in a mysterious biting accident, right? Right. Well, speaking of veils, uh, where there's something else on the other side of, let's go through the veil that is this commercial and see what waits for us on the other side. The Best of Askfagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush 
Rush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive-thru. Keep this podcast from being thrown in the dream furnaces of Jar, alongside such beloved Patreon backers as... Sean Hoyle! Alex Johnson! Corey Welch! Andrew Cowie! And Anton Kulikov! We hear a clatter, but it's not pots and pans, it's shakers. We smell the delicious smell, not of roasting meat, but of crushed citrus. We're not necessarily even sitting down at the table. We're standing up. Why, Robin, we've bellied up to the bar in the food hut. Who knew the food hut had a bar? Well, I guess anyone who thought about it for two <laughs> seconds knew the food hut had well, a bar. We've had one put in for this purpose. Right. But uh, you, Robin, have been uh, diving in real life, not in dream life, into the cocktail welcoming America's, uh, one of its greatest inventions, I would say, up there with your, you know, uh, democratic republicanism. Yeah, among America's three great contributions, jazz and ketchup is the cocktail. Comic books, come on, what the hell? But yes, uh, cocktail right up there, uh, and you have brought, as is your wont, the benefits of your research to us to talk about how America made the cocktail and how we made it great. Right. And I think a lot of people may be surprised to know that the cocktail goes back at least as far as 1806, when the word cocktail first appears, and probably, depending on how you count a mint julep, goes back to the mint julep, which was allegedly invented in 1776 at the Federal Tavern in Philadelphia, where the, the delegates were hard at work fighting off the hated British, and they needed something to cool them down, that someone added bitters to a mint julep, and the first cocktail was invented, possibly, let's say, by Benjamin Franklin. Let's just say that. And uh, that is, of course, a devout patriotic legend, but certainly by the early, very early 1800s, America was busy shaking up cocktails and angering and surprising British visitors who just wanted warm whiskey. Right. So what we're talking about here is cocktail culture as we know it, which gives us the wiggle room to avoid 15 minutes of semantic defining. And we're each going to recommend a uh, book. And mine is more on the uh, drinks recipe side. I think yours is more on the sociology side. I would recommend that people check out Imbibe by David Wondrick, which focuses on one particular bartender, Jerry Thomas, who was a celebrity bartender in his day. And also uh, his other fame uh, claim to fame is that he was one of the first to write down a book of replicable recipes that survive to this day. And so, as you suggest, drinking goes back a ways. Uh, distilled spirits go back to the Middle Ages and the widespread drinking of distilled spirits, uh, which includes wine-based things like brandy and Madeira and port and so forth, really uh, catches on in a wide scale in the early modern period. And so, the, the English have laid the groundwork for this revolution with their dedicated drinking and gathering of what become all of the ingredients. And, and you may think, uh, I think it's a common assumption that you're sort of hinting at, Ken, that a lot of people believe the old wives' tale that prohibition invented the cocktail and that it invented the cocktail in order to disguise the terrible taste of the uh, uh, still-made uh, liquors that were the only ones that were available. But that's not remotely true, as we're uh, about to uh, discover. It changed the fashions in cocktails, but the fashion of cocktails changes cyclically long before then. And so before the cocktail as we know it, there is punch, which is invented in England, known in England. And if you went into a bar previously, 
you would just ladle up a bunch of uh, punch for yourself and be sitting out in the bowl. And whatever punch the barman had laid on for that day was the punch you were going to get. And the advent of the going up to a bar and ordering a particular thing with a name, hard to pin down exactly where it is, but uh, Wondrick sort of places that the revolution is happening in the 1820s. And the thing that makes the difference is commercially available ice. Because it turns out that the, the main principle behind all of this is that spirits taste really good with ice and often with sugar mm-hmm. and also a flavoring agent. And that's what everything flows from. We know that the barman who popularized the use of ice in drinks was uh, Mr. Willard of the City Hotel, known only as Willard because his first name was Orsimus, <laughs> and he did not want to encourage the use of his first name. So he was like Cher. He was just Willard. And he was at the City Hotel in New York City. At that time, bars were not just uh, literally sort of off the lobby of a hotel, but were like in the lobby of the hotel, and you'd bring down a big cage at night to shut him down. And he became a big celebrity, and he was serving up uh, drinks where you could come up and order things and you would get them. And that's what cocktail culture is. And so pretty much immediately, there's a whole bunch of obvious categories. So there's uh, you can get an individual serving of punch often and then a bunch of other categories. So you could get a sling, which is just a spirit plus sugar plus ice. You can get a julep, which is all of those things plus some mint. Uh, as you suggest, that has a, a long pedigree. A storied history. There's a toddy, uh, which is the same thing, but hot. A cocktail, where you add, it's a spirit, sugar, ice, and then bitters. So at the time, cocktail was a subset of the various mixed drinks that you could get at a bar, not the broader category. So is that a synecdoche or a reverse synecdoche that causes the cocktail that then become the, the name of the category. I think it's just a standard synecdoche. The part becomes the whole. Right. I mean, don't, don't, don't quote me on that. We could be in metonymy territory, but I think it's still synecdoche territory. Right. Then you got your fixes or your fizzes or your sours, uh, which is a cocktail plus add citrus or a cobbler, uh, which people were uh, drinking in vast quantities in this era, which is uh, sherry and sugar and fruit. Uh, so like bits of orange slice or so forth. And then you get sort of off in a corner, you get your flip, which is uh, ale and eggs and rum, often but not always hot. And then eggnogs in this era are a thing that you would just expect to order, uh, not just at uh, Christmas time, but pretty much any time of the year when you wanted a uh, a hot drink. Although our hero, Jerry Thomas, uh, refused to serve eggnogs, uh, especially his version of the eggnog, the Tom and Jerry, before the first snowfall. He felt that uh, you were just ruining yourself if you drank it uh, when it was warm out. So uh, maybe Jerry had a piece of the ice concession, or maybe Jerry just uh, understood that uh, eggnogs is uh, is good in, in winter and that stop ruining things. So I guess Jerry Thomas is, is the first bartender we know who refuses to serve you a drink that he knows you don't want. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And of course, the great little side note there, uh, he, he was a sh- uh, showman. He was very theatrical, as were a lot of the bartenders in this era, especially once you get out to the San Francisco Gold Rush, where the show and the shakers is all part of the thing. So he was known later on for having two white mice who perched on uh, both his shoulders. One was named Tom, one was named Jerry. And surely uh, this must be the, the 
derivation of the cartoon character names, uh, Tom and Jerry. At some point, one of them morphs into a cat. But, you know, that's that's myth for you. You have to have the battle of opposites. So in the 1830s is when you have the next step, which is this great speciation where people start combining all of these basic formulas. And that's when you start to see lists of drinks where there's a, a, you know, here's all the drinks available at this bar. And those survive, even though quite often the recipes for them don't. And so you would look up at the board and you go, oh, tonight they have Franklin Peculiars and Timberdoodles, which is something that you could go as soon as bars open up in your part of the world, uh, you can imagine going to a bar and seeing the chalkboard and seeing Franklin Peculiars and Timberdoodles up on the list of specialty cocktails. So I can imagine doing it today in Bridgeport. Right. So by the 1830s, you've got cocktail culture as we know it. Yeah. Um, and that is the period in which the cost of ice is dropping dramatically. So it is really, as you say, spread by ice. Uh, the book that I uh, depend on for my knowledge of this matter is Drink. A Social History of America by Andrew Barr. Andrew Barr is a, a British author who is increasingly impressed at us as he writes this book. And that is the way that all authors should be, quite frankly, especially Britishers. So in uh, 1819, a pound of ice in New Orleans cost 12 and a half cents. In 1847, it cost a dollar for a hundred pounds of ice. So that is because people invented superior ice houses, and they also invented steam paddle boats that can go down the river fast and carry your ice all the way to the south. And although ice still remained a urban thing, you didn't have rural ice houses in much of the south before the turn of the century. You certainly only had ice for rich people in the south. But in the North, everyone had ice. It was a great democratic leveler. There was just ice all over the place. And then, of course, Yankees figured out how to sell ice to the British, who were too stupid to chop ice out of their own lakes and had to buy it from America. How great is that? Robin, does Wondrich uh, mention Canada, which as a land basically made of ice and British people should have been part of this scene? Or is the cocktail too democratic and you're all trying to invent coffee still? There is mention of uh, that the same drinking culture has hit Montreal. So perhaps not sober York, which becomes sober Toronto, uh, but definitely the North American cocktail culture speciates uh, into Canada as well. And so even within this time frame we're talking about, you see fashions come and go uh, in the world of drink. And so by the end of the century, instead of having elaborately colorful dressed bartenders who are uh, juggling the shakers back and forth and have uh, uh, Jerry Thomas was famous for being festooned with diamonds, for example. Uh, we already mentioned the mice on his shoulders. Yep. Mice and diamonds. The, the That's what brings you into a bar. Exactly. But by the end of the century, people, especially in New York, are getting a sense of we wish to be sophisticated that, that this drinking is not about showmanship of the bartender. It's about the, the drink. And so at this point, you hit the first point where there's long enough history of cocktails that people are starting to ask for, you know, more serious minded bartending and also a return to basics. And so we already did an earlier segment about my quest for a cocktail to order at a restaurant and I settled on the old fashioned. You said, that's a lot of work for the bartender. Ironically, it turns <laughs> out that the original old fashioned meant don't mess around with any of that fancy garbage. Just give me a cocktail. Just give me spirit, sugar, ice, and bitters. And uh, I've experimented with this, and it is very good. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't need any of the extra time-consuming stuff. This 
leads to the existential question, is it possible to go to a bar and say, I would like an old-fashioned old-fashioned and get anything but sullen resentment and confusion from your poor beleaguered <laughs> server? I suspect not. Yeah, I, I think that the that, that ship, like much of the g- glorious things of the past, has sailed for good or for ill. Yeah, the uh, uh, this is the era where um, you have uh, to briefly nod at both the social history and our own concerns. You have uh, immigration coming in. They're bringing their own things. Vermouth suddenly drops into America with the Italian immigrants in the 1840s through the 1860s. And you start seeing other spirits besides uh, rum and American whiskey because suddenly gin becomes a bigger import into America as places like Boston desperately try to identify with Britain instead of with an increasingly drunk and democratic America. So gin comes in upstairs, vermouth comes in downstairs sometime in the 1860s. They meet and they become the martini or the Martinez as is known at the time. Yeah. Vermouth is sort of around for a while and it just sort of lays fallow, uh, I guess, until it meets, meets up with gin Mm -hmm. and then, uh, and, and they desire to have a more sophisticated drink, which means they're starting to lean toward drinks that leave out the sugar in order to have their sweetness applied by vermouth. And then you're getting into the uh, style of drink that is just all pure alcohol together, which is not my personal fave, but there's lots of people (laughs) who love them as witness the continuing love for the Manhattan and the Martini and the Gibson uh, and the Rob Roy. And and various hotels in this era in the 1880s, 1890s, they had their own specialty cocktail and some of those have survived uh, the Brunswick cocktail was giant in uh, the 1890s because we can see that Robert W. Chambers mentions it, but it has sort of died along with the Brunswick Hotel and also because no one keeps claret around anymore, which is the float on top of it. But you are now, uh, by this time, you're basically getting, you know, almost, I would say, to entirely recognizable cocktail culture where you would know the names of maybe half the drinks on the menu and when they would be served to you, you would not say, who put an egg in this or whatever, right? That you, right. you'd have normal stuff. One thing that is still different at this point, though, is that the spirits themselves are often quite different than what you can readily source today. So yeah. single malt is is only just starting to be a thing. Uh, there are many different kinds of whiskeys. Uh, now, currently, some of the older things are being revived. So rye whiskey, which used to be a staple, is now becoming a staple again. Uh, but, for example, gin, the London dry gin was around then, was a staple then. But there are other gins that have fallen by the wayside and are uh, ripe for revival. There's Old Tom gin, which yep. I only just learned about, which is a sweet gin and had me looking up on the Liquor Control Board of Ontario site to see if their stores stock any of it. And it's like there's seven bottles of it in Toronto. Yeah. So it, has to- a, it has a big sort of a punchy mouthfeel. And it was the by far the most common gin for a huge amount of the history of gin. People drank Old Tom and uh, really the what you call London Dry was Plymouth Dry and was the only place that dry gin was available was pretty much in a distillery in Plymouth. Isn't it just like London to take that over later? Exactly. Jerks. Well, (laughs) British are always British, even to the other British. Especially to the other British. (laughs) Exactly. That's the whole point. Uh, The the, the bottle of Plymouth gin that you can buy at the the store is pretty much the dry gin that you would have had if you were drinking dry gin in the 1800s. But 
the fact that it's next to a million other dry gins is the new thing. The gin used to be far wetter, far more botanical, and also, as you say with Old Tom, sweeter because it was almost, you know, a punch in its own bottle, right? Right. And there was also Holland gin, which came from the Netherlands and was apparently seems to have been halfway between whiskey and gin and seems to have died out entirely. Also, rum is very different at this point because it's much funkier because one of the main ingredients is the sugary foam that rises to the top of, of the vat. Rums were heavier and richer, uh, had more complex flavor, and certainly nothing at all like uh, Bacardi, which is a very light rum, which is now sort of the staple thing. And so you see all of the the most commonly sold version of each spirit is much lighter and easy tasting or, you know, just sort of a, a bunch of near flavorless alcohol that you then add a mixer to and uh, enables you to get drunk fast without stopping. Right. And Barr's theory is that this is a response to prohibition, that during prohibition, you did have to drink so much stuff that was, uh, you know, like alcoholic milkshakes became a big thing during prohibition. Uh, you had to drink really terrible, muddy, flavor-filled cocktails so that you weren't tasting the bathtub gin or whatever, and that the desire for a a thinner, purer tasting drink is what drove a lot of those other funky variants, or even the funky originals, kind of into the margins and onto the back. And so Bacardi, for example, begins its conquest of American rums in the 1930s, after Prohibition is over. Vodka becomes big in America in the 1940s. The, the American palate is driven away from rich, tasty, rewarding cocktails by the sin against God and man that is prohibition. Right. And we're we're barely beginning to come back from that gigantic uh, psychic wound. Right. And there's also a big turn against sugar, sugary drinks, which happens even before then, as we talked about before, where mm-hmm. uh, white wine, which is the staple American wine before World War One. It's the staple everybody wine before World War One. Yeah, and sort of fell away. And then so post-prohibition, people no longer want to drink a bee's knees, which has honey syrup in it. And that's where you have that renaissance of all of the uh, things where you're just drinking spirits. You're not uh, necessarily having sugar in everything. But at the same time, in order to be able to tolerate a, a sugar-free cocktail, you are also thinning out the spirit so that it's uh, more palatable uh, on its own. So again, thanks America. Thanks. Uh, thanks to the 19th century America for inventing the cocktail. Ken, uh, is there anything you want to add before we uh, finish up this uh, row of punches and slings and juleps and toddies and cocktails and uh, head to the next segment? I think that my country and admiring British author, Andrew Barr speak for themselves. Drink up everybody. We are happy to go back to this. Well, (laughs) uh, anytime. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. 
a king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance the Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, beloved Patreon backer Neil Barnes asks, Why did you sabotage Otrag's efforts to launch private sector rockets from the middle of the Zairean jungle in the 1970s? Ken? I'm sure uh, that this is not an accusation. That is something that uh, that needed to happen. And when you look at what OTRAG is and uh, some of the some of the people involved with it, I begin to have a suspicion. I can. Uh-huh. Um, OTRAG uh, stands for Orbital Transport und Rocketen, or Orbital Transport and Rockets AG, which just means company in German. Uh, it's founded in 1975 by a guy named Lutz Kaiser. Lutz Kaiser was a boy in uh, Stuttgart who saw Americans uh, bomb the living crap out of Stuttgart and said, I got to get me a part of that. He wrote to uh, Von Braun when Von Braun uh, took over NASA in uh, and, the f- and tell the kids who Werner Von Braun was. Werner Von Braun, rocket scientist, rocket designer, built the uh, V weapons, the, the Nazi rockets that were shot ineffectually, but stupidly and cruelly at uh, England for the latter part of the war. Uh, built the V1, built the V2, was designing a V3, which could hopefully reach America. Everybody cross fingers. His boss at Pinamunda, which was the place they built these rockets, uh, was a guy named Kurt Debus, a dyed-in-the-wool Nazi. They used slave labor to build the rockets. It's just nothing. No part of this story is good, except rockets are cool. That is true, even if they're Nazi rockets. But Debus and Von Braun very cleverly surrendered to the Americans and the Americans say, well, our rocket program is Robert Goddard in New Mexico alone. So, yeah, we need some rocket guys. So they bring most of the Nazi establishment from Pinamunda uh, to Huntsville, Alabama, and they set them up basically as the hardcore of NASA with just enough American Air Force officers to keep it mostly not Nazi uh, when they do yeah, it. They feed them some apple pie and make them watch baseball. Make them watch baseball. Good. And uh, explain to Von Braun, at least, really picks up on be as American as you possibly can. I don't know how Americanized Debus gets after all of this. But anyway, young Lutz Kaiser writes away to uh, uh, Von Braun and says, I want to be an astronaut for America. How do I do that? And Von Braun says, how tall are you? And Kaiser says, I'm a six foot strapping Aryan Superman. And he writes back and he says, astronauts have to be small, be an engineer. <laughs> so Lutz Kaiser, uh, his dreams of space travel thwarted, then begins an engineering company and develops what, from all accounts, seems to be a pretty clever way to make long distance rockets, which is that rather than have stages fill to the brim with liquid oxygen, 
that you launch up, he will build lots and lots of modular tubes that you assemble into rockets. Each tube has its own explosive. And because you're building them in mass production, as opposed to basically artisanally handcrafting them, you get your costs down. And uh, his cost to launch is reported widely, not just by him, to be a tenth that of the standard uh, big old uh, multi-stage rockets. And that is enough to get the West German government, which then as now is chafing at the American halter to say, yeah, we'll fund you. And we'll fund you through this bank in Liechtenstein so we can stay deniable about it. Again, probably something West Germany is or Germany is doing right now. But anyway, he takes his big pile of German money from Liechtenstein and he goes to find a uh, monstrous dictator because that's how German rockets work best. And he finds uh, Mobutu, who is at that point running Zaire into the ground and has blown all of his money trying to keep the Portuguese in power in Angola. That didn't work in 1975. So he's basically bankrupt and desperate and uh, knows that rockets are indeed cool. So he agrees to basically lease a big chunk of the province of Shaba, which used to be the rebel province of the Katanga until Mobutu stomped it flat, as did the UN briefly before that. Katanga can't catch a break, but it does get a rocket base. And uh, the rocket base is an enormous stretch of land, roughly the size of Austria, and in theory, Otrag basically is the, you know, almost the neo-colonial power there. Uh, they dig a giant airstrip out of the, out of the jungle, which you can still see on Google Earth. And they start landing their, uh, planes there to bring their rocket stuff to Katanga. Um, they get a decent number of launches off. Uh, some of them work. Some of them don't work. It's like every other rocket program. Even today, rockets sometimes blow up. <laughs> but the trouble is that, first of all, nobody likes Mobutu, even the Americans who are basically uh, running him. And nobody likes Germany to have their own rockets, especially the Americans. And so everyone starts leaning on the Germans to stop doing that. And every so often they'll say, you're funding Mobutu. That guy's terrible. The Americans aren't saying that. They let the French and British say that. And uh, all the other countries in Africa are like, how are you allowing Germany to colonize Africa? Didn't we learn the last time we let Germany colonize Africa and making a big scream and stink about it? And so Mobutu basically uh, has to pretend, oh, they signed that without me. I had nothing to do with this. I'm as shocked as you are. I'm trying to fix it. And uh, by 1979, the situation gets so fraught that they pull up stakes. And so you would think, surely they have learned their lesson. The Americans will now buy his process and we will have cheap, wonderful rockets. Well, that did not happen for reasons. Uh, Kaiser says it's because American rocket contractors liked making 10 times what it costs to put a rocket in orbit <laughs> and they don't want to buy cheap German yeah, rockets. Yeah, I was going to mention that earlier. <laughs> yeah, that, that seems like a thing. So the uh, the Russians, the British, and the French are all leaning on the Germans to stop running the factory that builds these rocket parts. And so Lutz Kaiser is kicked out. Um, he's basically got uh, his rocket factory and his launch facilities, and he's looking around for a new place to put them. And of course, where does he pick, Robin? Where do you think he picks? Australia? That's open and beautiful and, and wonderful and uh, avoids Russians. Does that have a murderous dictator in Australia in, in 19... Oh, uh, no, there's not. Seven, oh, no. darn it. Darn it. Oh, nope. See, he yeah. picks good old Libya, run by Colonel Gaddafi, who even today in interviews, not today because um, Lutz Kaiser died three years ago, but recently, as recently as, you know, 
2012 in interviews, uh, Kaiser saying, oh, he was such a great guy. He looked amazing in his uniform. He was so <laughs> smart, too. I mean, you never met a smarter dictator. Really, I haven't. Kaiser, by the way, is one of those guys who has an art collection or had an art collection. After all of this happens, he opens up a B&B in the Marshall Islands in the Pacific, an Airbnb, basically, a, ho- a hotel or, you know, whatever, bed and breakfast, really. But uh, you can see his art collection if you stay there, and it includes a Matisse, and it includes a Hitler, and it includes another <laughs> Hitler. And sadly, his autographed copy of Mein Kampf was stolen from him, he says, or at least that's why he doesn't show it to the Guardian reporter who is there, one assumes, mouth dropping wide open at this news. But yeah, Lutz Kaiser, kind of a shady guy, I'm going to say, regardless of how cool his rockets may or may not have been. Right. So this begins to suggest we we need to get to the time machine portion of this. Do we really, though? (laughs) You're the one who's a stickler for having an actual alternate history in these segments. Am I? So you are. (laughs) Uh, So I think now you need to tell us what the dark timeline was that you avoided by making sure that uh, Kaiser retired with his Hitlers to the the Marshall Islands. Uh, What grim uh, history did you avoid by making sure that things uh, went down as they they have? Well, the uh, grim history is perhaps summarized by Muammar Gaddafi gets cheap long-range rockets, Robin. This is not... This is not the challenge contest. This is Gaddafi gets cheap long-range rockets, uh, drops one on uh, Cairo, drops another on Jerusalem, and says, I'm taking over. There is a hot war in the Mediterranean. America and uh, NATO can't really allow this. And the Russians, of course, are doing everything in their power to keep things going and keep things worse. And what with one and another cheap rocket flying around, uh, this being in 1983, when, if you'll remember, the insanely paranoid Yuri Andropov is in charge of Russia, and we have the Abel Archer exercises, which almost destroyed the world when uh, Andropov came this close to ordering a first strike. Well, guess what happens with a bunch of rockets flying around the Mediterranean, Robin, and the Russians horning in? Andropov orders that first strike, and it's not pleasant. It's, it's a bad scene. Uh, you can try and keep them in Zaire, but you know what that means? That means Mobutu has long-range rockets. It doesn't start a nuclear war, but it does start a horrific mess as he begins rocketing the capital of Angola, Luanda, in order to take the oil away from Angola in a great and horrible war. If you uh, were paying attention in the early part of the century, you noticed that what was called, with some reason, World War One in Africa was fought over the mineral riches of uh, what was Zaire and is now the Congo again. Well, World War One in Africa, just earlier and with rockets and with Soviets involved. So that was also a bad scene. There's just nothing that Kaiser does um, is going to be good. And, you know, really the best thing would have been get the Americans to take his rockets away. But you know, I'm only one man, Robin. I can't beat Raytheon. <laughs> right. Now, the, the sequence of events in our uh, history, I have to congratulate you, is quite seamless and everything seems to make a perfect sense as part of the uh, self And it turns rash. out you don't even have to get anyone drunk to get Gaddafi to get paranoid and steal the rocket facility from Lutz Kaiser. He just, you know, you show up and you say, I don't know, Gaddafi, that guy's um, not Libyan, just saying. And uh, Gaddafi's like, yeah, I should have all the rockets. And then sadly, he doesn't steal any of the how to make the rockets go part of the information. So there we are. So really, in terms of the potential disaster of nuclear Armageddon Uh and the difficulty of the intervention, 
this one is probably of all of your missions, perhaps the the one with the uh, widest ratio of uh, result to uh, difficulty of effect. Really, the only hard part is, you know, getting a little FaceTime with Gaddafi. And, uh, you know, you show up with a couple of autographed Hitlers. You're good. That's all I'm saying. Now, uh, the fact that you uh, intervene at the Gaddafi stage, uh, presumably the uh, the crocodiles that are somehow part of this story in uh, in Zaire do not really enter into your uh, time intervention because you can't get them drunk either. No, you can't get crocodiles drunk. Crocodiles are are sort of a a scene a scene setting element. They're one of the many dangers of having this rocket facility out in the middle of Katanga. And uh, I think it adds a, a, a piquance. And I'm not saying I did not encourage crocodiles to crawl across the launch pad every now and again, possibly as part of the, you know, pressure both sides to leave Zaire part of this uh, stage. And you can do that without getting drunk. You just put, you know, I don't know, a Martin Borman on the other side and, you know, slather him with barbecue sauce. So while you were conducting this time mission, I'm sure you were thinking how to do a uh, moon dust men scenario uh, inspired by uh, by your exploits and by Otrag. Oh god yes. Uh, this uh, this whole thing literally reads like a Bond movie anyway. Making it a Moondust Men adventure is super simple beginning with the sure NASA doesn't need this but Majestic needs this cheap rocket technology to shoot rockets at the aliens or there's some sort of a Fourth Reich connection, barely even a connection. It's practically there. <laughs> yes, the, the the Hitler paintings are the tip-off. Yeah, Hitler paintings are the tip-off. And, of course, you have uh, the fact that in addition to being a, a apparently fairly good rocket designer, Lutz Kaiser is also obsessed with disproving Einstein. He believes that the speed of light is not fixed, that you can uh, monkey around with it, but that nothing is relative, which I don't think you can argue at the same time, but I will admit there was a lot of math in his article and I didn't read it all. I, I sort of checked out with disproving Einstein, but you can say that uh, Lutz Kaiser in the course of his activities may have stumbled on a, a crashed UFO somewhere in, in uh, Zaire or that uh, he got some other kind of uh, deep alien knowledge. And maybe some of those crocodiles were reptoids. Who can say, Robin? Who can say? You know, or, or reptoid ancestors. You know, we yeah. don't know where the, where the reptoids came from. That's... That's really their family business. Uh, well, I think uh, I think again we can uh, breathe a sigh of relief that you uh, once again uh, saved the world and gave the, the comfortable timeline we know. And uh, I think I'm going to go back to the previous segment and grab a couple more old timey cocktails and uh, use them to uh, wave goodbye to everybody. But we'll be back a mere week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stop this podcast from blowing up on the launch pad by throwing in with such esteemed Patreon backers as... Carrie Shutrick. Christopher Hattie. Dave Choate. The Molten Sulfur Blog. And David Mascari. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Remind your group of the number one rule of role-playing in our latest design, never forget the snacks. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin T. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.